Welcome to the Podlight. I'm Joseph Jihaz, senior reporter at San Jose Spotlight and co-host of the Podlight, a podcast produced by San Jose Spotlight. Each year, Joint Venture Silicon Valley, a research organization focused on the region's economy, businesses, communities, and governments, puts out its annual index, a snapshot of how the region was faring in the prior year across a broad range of indicators. While the economy is overall in a bit of a wait-and-see mode, as tech sector layoffs and right-sizing continue to follow big booms in growth during the pandemic, one constant that was highlighted in the 2023 Silicon Valley Index is the region's massive and growing inequality. New data is showing us just how stark the divide is in Silicon Valley, truly a place of haves and have-nots, with massive concentration of wealth at the top and huge swaths of people struggling to feed their kids, pay their rent, and make it from one paycheck to the next. Today, to discuss some of the report's findings and where the region can go from here, are Russell Hancock, the president and CEO of Joint Venture, and Nicole Taylor, the CEO of Silicon Valley Community Foundation, a nonprofit that works to grow equity and opportunity in the region. Russell, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks. Yes, thank you. How's, how's it going for you today? Uh, it's uh, it's terrific. I look out my window and I see rain, and that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, we, we needed some, and it looks like the wind and rain have arrived in Silicon Valley. Well, for those for those who might not be so familiar with Joint Venture Silicon Valley, tell us just a little bit about it. What is your, what does your organization do, and why? Uh, our mission is to bring together Silicon Valley's leaders across all of the major sectors, and what that means is we have business leaders, local government leaders, uh, uh, philanthropy, college and university presidents, <clears throat> uh, the organized labor community. All of these sit down at the joint venture table, and uh, that's where we have dialogue and discussion about Silicon Valley and its challenges. The second part of our mission is to uh, provide research and analysis so that the dialogue can be fully informed by the facts and we can be making uh, really good and reasoned decisions about how we grow uh, and how we address our challenges. And so that would be like the Silicon Valley Index. What, what do you find important about this particular report that your organization, you do have or other reports, this one comes out once a year. Um, what's important about the Silicon Valley Index? You know, think of it like a, like a patient going to the doctor for the annual physical exam. That's what, that's what the index is. We do a complete workup. It's as if you're on the treadmill, you're getting your blood, uh, you're, uh, you're, you're doing this test and that test. Uh, we do the same thing, but the patient in this case is Silicon Valley, the entire region. And we track everything that we can possibly measure. And then the index becomes an exercise in saying, okay, these ones are going up, uh, these other indicators going down, some of them are going sideways. Um, it's an assessment tool. That's what it is. And then on the basis of the data, we can really talk and really uh, make uh, fully informed decisions. Well, you opened this year's index report. There's a letter at the front signed by you, you know, kind of like a kind of like a briefing before the letter. And you said the valley is in flux. So uh, I know the report is is big on detail and has a lot of information and there's a lot to cover. We'll try to get to some of the details in some of our coming questions. But can you tell us a bit about where things stand for the region overall? Well, um, uh, an extremely strong economy with uh, very solid fundamentals. Uh, the economy is uh, composed of uh, 
a huge swath of jobs that are specific to our place, the kind of jobs that you would see in any region. And then what makes us distinct is that we also have a huge swath of jobs that are narrowly defined as tech. In other words, we're doing tech. This is, it's one of our driving industries, one of our driving industry clusters. Uh, and uh, the tech sector is um, right now going through a transition. Uh, I characterize it as an adjustment. The pandemic turned out to be a, ben- a bonanza for tech. And uh, accordingly, they scaled up, uh, did all kinds of hiring, made capital investments. And uh, then now as the pandemic is waning, it turns out that those demand curves have changed on us. Uh, I think uh, I think a lot of the techs that thought that that would be a new plateau, not the case. And so they're having to recalibrate, adjust, let some of their workforce go. And so that's what I mean by flux. Uh, there is one other way that we're in flux as well. And that is, we're not quite sure where we're going. What's the new thing? Where, you know, where are we headed? And folks think that it uh, is probably wrapped up in artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, those types of things. But we're in a wait and see on, on all of that. All right. Well, thank you for that recap. That's really helpful and gives us a good place to start. Um, one of the constants, as we said in the intro to our podcast here in the index year over year, has been the region's often growing disparities. Um, for the first time this year, um, the index had included the ultra high net worth individuals or households in its view of inequality, and it kind of changes the lens a bit. Um, so a couple of just data points here across Santa Clara and San Mateo counties, the report, the report says that just eight residents or eight households hold more wealth than the bottom 50% of residents combined, and that's nearly 500,000 households. So while those eight are very likely billionaire leaders of some of the biggest tech firms in the world, um, it doesn't quite stop there. The top 1% in the region hold about 37% of the wealth and the top 10% about 66%. How have we gotten to the point of such extreme wealth accumulation in this region? Hmm. You know, um, it didn't happen overnight. This has happened over a long period of time, starting about in the 1990s. And it happened gradually, so gradually that folks weren't even noticing it till turn of the century. Then we started tracking it more carefully, and then boom, it's uh, it, it has progressed to this scale, which is uh, as extreme as any place on the planet. But we should understand it in full historical context. Silicon Valley used to be characterized by mid-range professions and income inequality. I'll exaggerate to make the point, but you know, in uh, in the 1980s. Uh, people in Silicon Valley were working at HP. They were working at Lockheed. Um, they would go home. They would mow their own lawns, and they would live in tract housing. Right? It was that. It was that kind of a place. Actually, characterized by equality by uh, by those mid range professions. Well, uh, we did it to ourselves. We invented new technologies that actually eliminated whole classes of jobs. And it happened gradually, but uh, along the way, we just we discovered that we didn't actually need uh, support staff. We didn't need administrative assistants. We didn't need secretaries. We didn't need filers, coders, uh, archivists, uh, receptionists. We just we just didn't need those things any longer because we'd invented technologies that replaced them. And that trend uh, only accelerated, and it's accelerated. Uh, uh, at a pace now that is creating these enormous uh, gaps because now we don't have anything in the middle. What we do have are the ultra talented uh, uh, people that know how to make electrons dance, people that can do amazing coding and software architecture and uh, are at that 
cutting edge of invention, peering through electron microscopes and, uh, and, and doing all of the rest. Those are highly talented people, the world's most talented people. And uh, there's, uh, uh, there's a competition for their talent. And so those salaries uh, keep, uh, keep going upwards. And, and then the fabulous wealth that you're describing, that's the kind of wealth because there have been major liquidity events. Companies have been created. Those companies have provided a device or a service uh, to every person on the planet. We have to be talking about it in that scale. And then when those companies uh, realize liquidity, go through a public uh, offering, uh, it creates uh, the kind of wealth that we can't even uh, find vocabulary to describe. And all of, that's, uh, all of that's happened in Silicon Valley. Meanwhile, we still have uh, uh, the service sector, the support sector that has always been there, but now the, the gap is just stark. And uh, their wages haven't increased at the same pace that the costs have increased in Silicon Valley, the cost of living especially. Because we're such a successful region, because there's so many people flooding in here to participate, the cost of housing has just uh, gone through the roof. And yet uh, those supporting sectors haven't had a, compens uh, a commensurate uh, hike in their wages. So uh, long answer, but that, that's how we got here. And by the way, I appreciate I appreciate the detail. Yeah. Well, uh, let me also point out that it's all fair. It's all legal. Uh, this is this is how capitalism works. Yeah, it's the system that 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 the that the um, that these technology firms and other industries are working within. That's that's absolutely right. Now, you can be critical of the system and maybe we are. Nevertheless, it's a system. It has rules. All of these fabulously wealthy people have played by those rules. Well, and you, you transition. You, you offered a, a great transition in one of our next questions, talking about the service sector and the folks who do still work very hard and work every day uh, to provide to their families, but they don't they don't work in those extremely um, you know high compensation sectors. So there's about you know while we've talked about the very very top, there's also about two hundred and twenty thousand households, according to the index this year. Um, with less than $5,000 in their bank accounts. I mean, so th this is a very small amount of money. It's, it really means, um, as the report laid out, that if there was some sort of sickness or major event in their life that would cause them to stop working, even for a short time, they may not be able to make ends meet um, very soon after that. What, so if it's a little bit of a similar question, but I was going to ask you, what does it say about Silicon Valley that we have these disparities, that there are so many at the top holding so much of the pie, I'm sorry, so so few at the top holding so much of the pie while many more are struggling um, just to get by each day. Well, it's, uh, it tells you that uh, Silicon Valley is a place that exhibits the full range of human experience and uh, it's, it's fairly staggering. Uh, if you're asking my opinion, uh, my opinion is that it's also a very sad commentary on uh, life in the 21st century, especially life in a place that uh, is one of the most prodigiously productive economies in the history of regional economies. But uh, this, is, uh, this is the outcome. Uh, capitalism has some ugly externalities about it. And this is, uh, this is certainly one. Yeah. And let's, let's talk a little bit more about how, how we can know about inequality. Sure, we have these stats that say, of course, there's people who've done very, very well who've run these, like you said, these world-changing companies. So, of course, they have a lot of money. And then there's people who are um, doing more service-oriented jobs or lower-wage jobs. So, they have less money at this moment. That's kind of a situation we're in. But Let's talk about how the report um, measures inequality in another way. There's there's kind of a jargony term called the Gini coefficient, but it's it's a measure that's in your report for several years now. Tell us what is this what does this measure actually mean in terms of inequality, and what does it mean for the value of where we are right now 
in that measure. The Gini coefficient is a tool invented by economists to measure uh, the distribution of wealth. And it's a really useful tool. It just uses a scale, zero to one or zero to a hundred. And um, if you are 100 on the scale, that means that one person holds all of the wealth. And if you are uh, zero on the scale, that means that all of the people hold all of the wealth equally. So that's that's a useful tool, and you can apply it to national economies and, and, to, and to local economies. Well, um, the United States, you might be curious to know, is around 56, 57 on the Gini coefficient. Um, and that's considered by economists to be in a healthy range. Silicon Valley at, 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 in uh, 1990 was 30 on the on the Gini coefficient. That's the Silicon Valley I was describing. Everybody working. That's the tract homes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Um, uh, uh, so so we were 30. Uh, today we are above 75 on the on the Gini coefficient. Just just Silicon Valley. If we were if we were a country developmental economists would consider us to be politically unstable. So that that's what we're talking about. So the higher that score goes, the more theoretically political more instability increases. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, concent con concentration of wealth and power or the perceived concentration of those things creates social instability. And so what does that mean for the Valley in terms of potential, you know, it, it's, uh, does that mean we're on the precipice of either big change or of things getting worse? What, what, what could that possibly mean when we talk about that instability? Well, the Valley's not a nation state, of course. So we're not talking about uh, the, the political instability of a region. Uh, but what we are talking about is being on the cutting edge of, uh, of, of a conundrum, and it's a national one, which is uh, uh, the nation is seeing a concentration of wealth. And what does that mean? Uh, I would argue that that was really the major theme of um, the election of 2016. It really does describe or account for the rise of populism. It accounts for uh, the amount of anger and the way that it's being expressed uh, in the political system. It even accounts for uh, the divisiveness and the polarity that we're seeing uh, in state capitals and now in uh, certainly in our nation's capital. So that's what's going on here. And these are questions that we have to address philosophically, but we also have to address them uh, through uh, the, the political system. And that means um, elections matter. And um, uh, uh, the, the upcoming election, 2024, uh, these issues I think will be front and center. Thank you, Russell. Well, and one of the other uh, measures of inequality um, isn't just, you know, who has money and who doesn't. It's about the groups within those um, pieces of info. And, and the report does a really great job of laying out some of the various ways these disparities exist. One of the biggest ways that's called out in the report is the racial disparities. Um, feel free. I mean, there are a lot to choose from, but I'd love to know what do you think are some of the most significant figures in your view um, from the report when it comes to gaps that are shown between residents of different ethnic or racial backgrounds? Uh, there's a couple in particular that drove me to despair. Uh, it's shocking, frankly. Uh, we thought that education was the answer. We've always held that up as the great answer. That's, uh, that's the path forward. It can be the great equalizer. But in Silicon Valley, we've discovered through the index that 
Uh, it's actually not. For example, um, you can take a sample of uh, African-American residents and uh, white residents, both samples holding uh, bachelor's degrees or their equivalent, and there will be a 60% gap in the income between those uh, two sets of people. Uh, we can't account for it. I don't have an explanation for you. I don't know why the gap is there. Um, and uh, that's also the case uh, when we compare our white residents and our Hispanic or Latino residents who also both sets holding uh, bachelor's degrees. So that's, uh, that's sad. Now, um, we've also had this hope that tech would uh, represent opportunity for these underrepresented sectors, for them to be more fully participating and to realize the material awards that uh, Silicon Valley has to offer. But um, that's not happening yet. Now, I think there are efforts. I think there are genuine efforts underway in the tech sector, but uh, the fruit of those efforts we cannot yet measure. And so when you look at uh, the top 20 tech companies in Silicon Valley, um, the people that are in the, in the positions of leadership uh, do not contain people who are uh, African-American or black or uh, Hispanic or Latino. They're, they're minuscule percentages of those. So, so it's not just an issue of, yeah, like you said, not just an issue of, okay, we're not uh, doing a good job as an industry or as a valley of getting people equally distributed throughout the chain of command, so to speak, but also as even those who have similar education, like you said, um, competing theoretically on the same field are massively disadvantaged between one another. There's there's huge gaps. There. Uh, that's uh, that's a fact. That is a Silicon Valley fact. It's a it's a particularly ugly fact. Uh, the system left to itself has brought us this. Uh, if we want a different outcome, that means that we have to introduce something to the system. Uh, and so those are big philosophical, uh, political, and societal questions. But if if we would like to see a different result, we have to do something different in Silicon Valley. Certainly. Do you think these kinds of disparities are like talking about wealth, racial, all these various measures of inequality that we've discussed and that the report goes into even more detail in, which I recommend folks take a look at it because it's a great report. Are these kinds of disparities sustainable in the long term? Well, uh, uh, no. Uh, ultimately, what happens is uh, you create unrest, uh, you uh, you create uh, political instability, social upheaval, um, uh, and uh, those things can happen. Those things should happen. So, yes, that's uh, uh, people who study the long sweep of history will tell you that all of the conditions for revolution or upheaval uh, are. Are, are, are coming to be present here in Silicon Valley or in the nation at large. Silicon Valley is on the leading edge of it, you realize. But I'm also describing national trends. Well, thank you, Russell. This has really been helpful. I think it's been a, a really enlightening conversation. And, and we just want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come and, and offer us some of, the, some of the best nuggets of knowledge out of this report and out of uh, your organization's work. It's my pleasure. May I just uh, tell your listeners that the index is uh, available to the region. You can go to our website, jointventure.org, and it's right there. You can download it as a PDF. You can also order it on amazon.com. And uh, we, we provide it to the region because we want it to be a tool in everybody's hand. Well, thank you so much, Russell. Yeah. And we have a link to the, uh, to the website and to the report in our articles on San Jose Spotlight that reference it. And uh, thank you so much again for your time today, Russell. It's been my pleasure. Thanks. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this. Hey, 
Hello, Josh Bruce here, co-founder of San Jose Spotlight. Did you know that San Jose Spotlight is Silicon Valley's only nonprofit news organization? That's right. Our impact journalism is funded by generous readers like you. And this year, we have plans to expand our reporting to other cities in Santa Clara County. If you find value in our reporting, consider becoming a sustaining member today with a monthly or annual recurring donation by visiting our website, SanJoseSpotlight.com. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast, Nicole. Oh, it's great to be here, Joseph. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. How's it going for you today? It's going well. Um, you know, I, I, it, it's going well. We just came through another wild weather system. So I'm doing okay, but I know a lot of people aren't. So when people ask me that, it's it's always I always have mixed feelings about how I respond. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, the storm system is still happening, right? Um, multiple days ahead. Yeah. It is people without power, you know. So yes, so those things weigh on me. It's a I can't help it. But uh, overall, I'm doing good. Yeah, someone in your position, absolutely. So let let's get into that. Tell us a little bit about for those who might not be familiar, a little bit about Silicon Valley Community Foundation, the organization that you head up, and and what kind of work it does, and for who. Yes, thank you. So the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, at the core, we serve San Mateo and Santa Clara counties. And we consider us a regional catalyst, connector, and collaborator. So what does that mean? So we um, work with donors, philanthropists, and companies to help them with their philanthropy. And at the same time, we work to embed ourselves in communities to understand what the needs are and what the issues are. Um, So because of our donors and because of where we are in the Valley, we have some very generous people. We are the largest supporter of uh, local Bay Area and California nonprofits. So in our two counties and the 10 Bay Area counties and all of California, we're the largest uh, funder of nonprofits. Um, And last year in 2022, we distributed because of the generosity of our donors, nearly $2.6 billion to over 5,000 community organizations. And nearly 550 million of that went to organizations here in the Bay Area. So people have been quite generous and we've seen that pattern I've been, this is my fifth year as CEO, um, just starting my fifth year. And I've seen this pattern of generosity, particularly since COVID, just how people are using, they have donor advice funds with this, how they're using their funds to really get it out into community and to people who need it. Our ultimate goal is to bring people together and to create a more equitable, economically secure and vibrant future for everyone, everyone here in Silicon Valley. So I think our conversation today is really on point in terms of what we see as our mission and our responsibility here for the people who live in our our two counties. Well, thank you for that overview. Yeah, it's a massive amount of impact. Um, and and uh, I mean, the, those dollars sound big, but the need is, uh, is also big. Yeah. yeah. And one of the, I think one of the most critical pieces of what we do um, is look to our communities to help define what the challenges are, what the obstacles are, and what the solutions are. And that's what drives our work. And that's what we believe is going to transform this region. And you know, through our grant making, we w- want to address both long-term solutions, the long-term inequities, the long-term kind of entrenched issues. But we also try to work on solving immediate crises, like what we opened with, you know, just the all of the disasters we've seen, um, both man-made and, and nature-made, and um, and really helping folks in immediate need. 
So we try to do both. We try to balance both, both the short-term and the long-term work that needs to be done in our in our communities. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for that. And we should we should note that, uh, yeah, your foundation does, as you've just outlined, make a, a large number of grants to a variety of nonprofits and other organizations that do work in the community. One of those categories has uh, is local journalism. And there's a lot of different outlets on there, but we should note as a disclosure and just, you know, in the interest of transparency that, yeah, your organization has donated um, or granted $30,000 to San Jose Spotlight in the year 2022 to help support um, our work. So uh, we appreciate that, of course, but also want to just kind of state that at the front. Well, and, and for us, the only way we can do our work is through organizations right? Through community organizations to people embedded and based in, in the communities and San Jose Spotlight is one of them. So it's a, you know, great to be able to be able to support you all. Well, thank you. And let's, let's go on with our discussion for today. As you were mentioning earlier, the, the topic we want to discuss with you today is the Silicon Valley Index 2023, the report put out each year by joint venture. Um, it has some startling figures uh, this year, underscoring kind of the the way that our wealth gap is growing in the region. This is one of the constants of the report is that there's always a, um, a stark disparity in Silicon Valley and it seems to be getting bigger. For the first time, the report is including what's you know referred to as ultra high net worth households in its view of inequality. And um, some stats here across Santa Clara and San Mateo counties, the report is saying that just eight residents or eight households hold more wealth than the bottom 50% of residents combined, which is roughly 500,000 households. So that's, you know, more than a million people, just a large amount of people without wealth and a very small number of people holding a ton of wealth. Um, the region also has about 220,000 households with less than $5,000 in their bank accounts, very little wiggle room to get by. What's your initial reaction to those kind of figures? What does it mean on the ground, um, you know, in terms of people's reality each day? Yeah. So first of all, it's um, disheartening to actually see those figures in, you know, black and white in print. It, it, it's hard um, to reconcile uh, the disparities and that so many families are struggling. And, you know, that the concentration of wealth has has exacerbated existing inequalities. Um and that resources and opportunities are not un, are not evenly distributed here. Um, many of these families. So what all this means is many of these families have a hard time just paying necessities like food and rent. And then you add childcare, which is really a necessity in order for parents to be able to go out and work, and the cost of childcare and the availability of childcare. And then you know what happens when there's an emergency? What happens when there's a storm and they get flooded out? Or what just happened in the last three days where some people have been out without power for three days. What, what are they supposed to do? You know, if they, all of their food goes bad. So now they have to figure out how they're going to replenish and feed their families. Um, they're not left with much after, after you think about paying for, you know, rent and, and food and childcare. So that's what that number means. Um, the other thing is it's not really surprising to me that, you know, I've um, lived in the Bay Area longer than anywhere else and, and in, in this part of the, the Bay in particular. And, uh, you know, I've seen it for years. Our community and nonprofit partners do this work in this community every day. And too many of our neighbors are struggling with the high cost of living and can't afford these basic human necessities. It's just exacerbated and grown over time. 
And, you know, we believe, and I hope everyone listening <laughs> believes the same thing, that everyone deserves the opportunity at a thriving, fulfilling life here in our region, no matter what your race is, your socioeconomic status is, your gender identity, your citizen's status. Our region is an incredible place filled with tremendous innovation and creativity, which was also covered in the index. And it's time for us to harness that innovation and creativity um, and the resources, all of the resources, and bring them all to bear so that we can advance equity and, and social justice and access to opportunity for every resident living here. Well, thank you for for sharing some of you know what you've experienced that you know in your work at this organization. Yeah, absolutely. You're a little closer maybe than the average resident to some of the to some of the stark realities for people every day, right? And and certainly the costs of everything have gone up, like you noted. And if yeah, if you're one of the folks who lost power, uh, you're faced with some difficult choices. Um, you know that aren't your fault, uh, but but certainly impact your you know your wallet or your budget. So um, you did mention the idea of like you know, basically that everyone deserves this, you know, an opportunity to thrive here, no matter where they come from or their background. That's one of the highlights in the report is um, the drastic disparities between people of different ethnic or racial backgrounds. Um, again, just just a quick data point out of the report, um, black and Latino residents uh, in the Silicon Valley area are less than half as likely um, to be able to buy their first home in the region out of potential first-time home buyers, that is, as compared to white residents. And about a third as likely Black and Latino people are uh, as likely to be able to buy their first home as Asian residents. So there's these massive, you know, divides. Obviously, housing is expensive for everyone in the Bay Area, and that is a non-discriminatory factor that housing is expensive. But when you get to these kind of stats that really focus in, just saying of, of the people who are potentially eligible to buy a home, there's still these massive disparities. What what does buying a home in this region mean for a family? Yes. Well, home ownership anywhere is considered the number one pathway to, to wealth and being able to, you know, live a decent life in terms of being able to meet your basic necessities and more and thrive and raise your family. And as we saw and as the index data laid out, for many Black and Latino residents in Silicon Valley, it's not a reality. You know, the share of first-time home buyers who can afford a median-priced home fell to 27%, and is as low as 14% for the region's Black and Latino residents. It's a little ridiculous when you think about those statistics. And but the issue isn't just about home buying and home buyers, which is critical. Like I said, to 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 build and start building some economic mobility. Uh, half of Silicon Valley renters are what's called burdened by housing costs. So what does that mean? That means they spend more than 30% of their income on housing. And for those renters who are over the age of 65, they spend over 58% of their income on housing. That means they're spending over half of the money they make on housing. Uh, so both for renters and, and, and people who are trying to be first-time home buyers, it's a pretty harsh reality. Um, you know, one of the things we've been doing is funding organizations that protect people from you know, unjust evictions, displacement uh, through anti-gouging and just cause policies and tenant counseling and legal services. And these organizations that we fund are trying to make it easier for residents to find affordable housing and preserve existing affordable housing and figuring out how can that housing be acquired and rehabilitated and really getting people housed and, and staying in their houses. 
um, you know, we, we advocate as much as we can for inclusionary policies and streamlining local regulations. And we try to leverage new money with um, innovation in terms of producing new housing um, and things like land trusts and co-ops and shared housing, building secondary units on people's property. You know, so our, our take is we have to use every possible tool in the toolbox to try to make sure that people can afford to live here in this valley. And, um, you know, what the, all of those things that I just described, they're really chipping away at how um, burdened people are. So it's, um, and, you know, I want to stress, you know, people know of, they see the homeless, they see the encampments. And for a lot of people, they see those people as other that it, they're distant from our your current my current situation. I feel sorry for them, but you know it's time for us to recognize the humanity and the dignity in the people who are just trying to make it, make it here. Many of the people living that who are unhoused are providing services to us. They are our neighbors. They are us. And I think part of the, what we need to see is and recognize is that humanity and figure out, okay, okay so what is it going to take? What can I do in terms of helping these folks just, just try to live and survive here? So, Thank you for that perspective, Nicole. Appreciate it. Yeah. And, and I, I think it's really great how you outlined kind of the the duality of the housing market. Um, speaking just for a moment about people who are, are managing to stay housed. Um, not enough money to possibly afford a home because of the skyrocketing prices. Even right now with a touch of softening in the market, it's still, you know, some all-time highs or near all-time highs. Um, but then also those who are renting, uh, you know, are putting more and more of their paychecks in each each time. Right, right. I think the median home price, in a, it says it was over a million, almost a million and a half dollars, I think the index laid out. So uh, that's... Um, that's unaffordable for most people living here. It's a big number. Well, thank you, Nicole. So let's continue going through the report here. Um, some of the, again, there's so much data in this report about, as you mentioned, the economy and about the disparities. We want to just highlight a few here and and, and we are encouraging folks to, to read this index for themselves and kind of learn uh, as much as they'd like to and go as deep as they'd like to about some of the data. But um, going to more racial disparities in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, we have less than uh, 40% of black residents in the region have a bachelor's degree or higher compared to about 62% of white residents and about 67% of Asian residents. Um, when it comes to Latinos, only about 22% of our Latino residents have a bachelor's degree or higher. So there's this disparity in educational attainment. Um, but we're finding in the report um, that even with similar education or the same, uh, the racial disparities are persisting and they are significant. So the report also pulls out a stat about those with bachelor's degrees or higher. So basically college educated folks among that group, white workers are still earning an average of 61% higher than Latino workers and about 62% higher than black workers. And that's not just a, a snapshot over just one year. That's over the period of 2016 to 2021. So you know, several years of a growing uh, racial disparity in pay, even for people who are similar, similarly situated and ed educated. So 
the report doesn't offer explanations for these things. It's just a snapshot. But my question to you is, what do you view as the root of these kinds of issues? What do these racial disparities say about our region? Yeah, well, there are serious gaps in access to higher education for Black and Latinx students, for one. And those disparities, unfortunately, start from birth. Race and poverty can have significant impacts on early childhood outcomes. And those outcomes, it's their social determinants of health that shape a child's experience and opportunities. And there are many studies that show that children from low-income families are more likely to experience childhood trauma and stress that result in negative outcomes like lower academic achievement. Unfortunately, in our region and across this country, Black and Latinx students are more likely to come from low-income families and attend schools that are underfunded, that have fewer resources, less experienced teachers or overworked and overburdened teachers, and less rigorous academic programs. All of this results in lower academic achievement and lack of college readiness. And then just getting into college. So, so say you can overcome all of that, right? And you can get into college. That's not enough. A lot of, I spent a lot of my career in higher ed as well. And Black and Latinx students are also much less likely to graduate once they're in universities. There are a lot of barriers. Cost is one. Tuition at public universities has grown by 211% over the last 20 years. So there's, you know, the, the idea of taking on high student debt, which they do, limited family resources. Many uh, Black and Latinx students are first in their family to go to college. And so finding that support, um, it can be a struggle. And I know many of the students that I've engaged with um, throughout, you know, my career when I was working in nonprofits and higher ed had to, you know, either work part-time and try to go to school full-time or they're trying to juggle, you know, well, maybe I'll just take one course a semester. And it's really hard. So um, these disparities all tell me three things. One, that we need to invest more in quality early childhood development and K-12 education in the communities that have been marginalized. Two, we need to better address the need to increase access to college and success in college for communities of color and poor communities. And three, we need to support community services and programs that provide the critical support um, to the wellness and the well-being and the success of the students and their families, the support to the families as well. is kind of buttressing these students so that they have the ability to make it all the way through. And, um, and it's just spotty. It's, you know, that kind of support is spotty throughout our region. And, you know, as I think further beyond this, though, it's, um, you know, that's just talking about the disparities in education, right, and higher education and um, and what I think and what I've seen and experienced over my, my career that leads to it. But there's, you know, a deeper, deeper issue about the inequities in our region, just beyond that. Yeah. I mean, there's, well, that's, I mean, that's a great transition into one of our next questions. And you know, is that you, you've kind of covered a lot of great information here in terms of what your organization does and the various problems that it's trying to untangle, right? There's these deeply rooted, you know, systemic issues that an injection of cash can maybe help in the, in the short term, but it has to be, you know, surrounded by a framework of, of, of you know, undoing uh, a lot of things, a lot of systems, right? And a lot of things that have been put in place that have given us these results. 
Um, so, I mean, our, our closing question for you is just kind of, what do you see as the broad scope of work that needs to continue? How do we address these inequities from a system, systems-wide view? And, um, and if there's any, you know, you know, other efforts you wanted to highlight that your work, uh, that your organization is doing, we're, we're happy to hear about them. Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you, Joseph. So uh, I think the, what it comes down to and our approach comes down to kind of four buckets of work. One is what we're calling investing in power building. It's investing in the people who are most affected by an issue to be part of solving that problem, giving them the agency, giving them the resources they need to help themselves to help their communities. And so we prioritize investments in local organizations that do just that, organizations led by people of color, by women, by immigrants and other underrepresented groups, and literally helping those leaders help their communities. Um, we granted $2.2 million last year to 38, what we call power building organizations in our region, and 87% of them were led by Black, Latinx, Indigenous, and other people of color. And again, it's, it's providing the resources they, they need to do what they know needs to be done in their communities. Um, the second bucket of work I, I, what we try to do is invest in local organizations that are using a racial justice and equity lens. So our local journalism, we talked to earlier about our support of local journalism, that program is one of those that we, with what's happening in media generally and what's happening in newspapers and, and news generally, who is providing trusted sources of news and information for our communities? And it's the local journalism outlets. And, you know, the, that you and others like that, just as an example, are really critical in communities and providing a lens and raising stories and issues of equity. So um, that's... That's really important to us. Um, we have two funds we've also started. One is the Latin Excel Fund. It's a $10 million three-year initiative to support um, and strengthen Latinx leaders and organizations in Silicon, Silicon Valley. And we started it with the Castellano Family Foundation, wonderful family. And really, it is, again, to provide the leaders in the Latinx community with the support they need to, to help the, their communities around civic and economic engagement and leadership opportunities and other issues that they see, economic, entrepreneurial you know, opportunities, all of that. And the other fund that we created, which is right after George Floyd got murdered, we created it with uh, many other foundations across the state it was the California Black Freedom Fund. And that's a five-year, $100 million initiative to ensure black power building and movement-based organizations, again, have the sustained investments and resources to really deal with systemic and institutional racism. And so those are the kinds of things that we try to do and support. The, I think the other really critical piece to address inequity is intentional collaboration across sectors and industry. It, can, it will never take one entity alone. It will never take one sector alone. It's got to be, yes, community-based organizations, higher education, business, government. It takes all of us working together. Face 
faith-based organizations. It takes all of us working together and rowing in the same direction, if you will. And so we um, are driving a new initiative called Equity Forward to do just that in our two counties. And the idea is, okay, how do we, again, shift the power to the community members and community leaders and get all sectors engaged, community-based organizations, we have higher education institutions that have come together, 14 higher education institutions have come together to figure out how do they shift their practices to support historically marginalized communities. Uh, Local governments are thinking about how do they allocate federal relief dollars in a more equitable way. So um, those are the kinds of things that we have been doing um, to, to think about systemic inequity. We've also supported guaranteed basic income programs. You know, how do you, we supported pilots in Mountain View, the County of Santa Clara, the city of South San Francisco, um, Destination Home has uh, been working with Santa Clara County on this as well. And, you know, how do you, what happens when you provide monthly cash payments, no strings attached to poor people? to low-income residents. They actually pay their bills. They put food on the table. They do They do things to keep their families' needs met. Um, so, you know, we're also funding research to see, okay, what if we did more of that? What if we actually helped people just have money to survive? So those are some of the things that we've done, again, to try to just get it. Yeah, just well, really thank you. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a very broad list. We really appreciate yes. you kind of like diving into those different sorry. areas. And, and <laughs> certainly, know, and certainly no, 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 no. And cert- certainly we've done some reporting at San Jose Spotlight about the UBI program, some of which you guys are involved in. I think we, we've covered the Mountain View one and some efforts in Santa Clara County more broadly. And um, yeah, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of them have sprung up in recent years and are in different stages. So, I mean, that's definitely an important effort, right? To see what comes out the other end of all these like experimental funding, basically. So, um, but Nicole, we can't thank you enough for, for sharing your knowledge with us and giving us your time to, um, to help kind of just elucidate the, the vast uh, world that is, you know, this, these two Silicon Valleys that we live in, right? And help kind of shed some light on, on the actual on the ground issues. So thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. And I hope I just gave also people some hope that there's some really good things happening to maybe create one Silicon Valley instead of two. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you again. And, uh, you know, we'll hope to speak to you again sometime soon. All right. Thanks, Joseph. That's it for this episode of The Podlight, a podcast produced by San Jose Spotlight. I'm senior reporter Joseph Jiha. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thank you.